Wayne Burgess, Leading with Kindness. Dear audience, my name is Ludmila Der. I'm the Managing Director of Elite Experts Conferences and I would like to welcome you to the next episode of the Elite Experts Conferences podcast. Whether at live events or in the digital world, we bring together cool promising tech startups with exciting innovative global players and generate a platform where the world of sustainable technology meets. Get to know the different companies, but also the inspiring leader personalities behind these brand names. Our motto is towards a better and cleaner future through knowledge transfer and technology. Our guest today is someone truly outstanding. It is my special honor to welcome Wayne Burgess here. Anyone in our community who has anything to do with design knows immediately what a legend this person is. For everyone else, here's a brief background story. There's one company in particular whose story is very much tied to your life, Wayne as you were there for almost 20 years. But let's start from the beginning. After you finished your studies in Coventry and you came, you found your way to Jaguar Land Rover after two jobs and a total of five years. You started there first as a principal designer. After two years, you became senior design manager at Aston Martin for two years, and then it was back to Jaguar Land Rover, where you spent a total of over 17 years. First as chief designer working on XF and F models, but also being responsible for S-Type and XK programs. Later you were design director and were responsible for all Jaguar production vehicles. Then you moved to Geely Design in UK and became head of design and VP for almost two years. This was followed by a short stopover at Paramex Limited and since April 2021, You are VP Design at All Electric Mobility in UK and Indian new player in mobility. That's just in a nutshell your very impressive career. All right then, let's talk about some details of your career. About design, of course, but also about your development as a leader, mentor, personality. As in every episode, we will have the opportunity to learn together about the industry, but also to learn for life. Let's start. Wayne, I would like to take a look into the past, into the time when you were considering what you wanted to become. It was a very different time in terms of getting the right information. You were very interested in car design, but you didn't know where you could study exactly that. You knew that mechanical engineering was not for you, but then you narrowly escaped studying architecture. So how was that exactly? Tell me a bit more. Okay, well, you've got to bear in mind, I'm, I'm an old man now. So I, I grew up in the late 70s and, and early 80s was when I was at school. And of course, in those days, you didn't have the internet. Car design is still quite a specialist subject. But when I was, you know, 10 years old, it was, it was just impossible to find anything about it. I, I come from Stoke-on-Trent as well. So I, I wasn't in the middle of the car manufacturing world. That's Coventry, where I now live. So I was at a bit of a loss. I used to draw cars all the time. I drew cars from the age of four, and I used to design my own as well. Rolls-Royce was the nearest manufacturer to us. They were in Crewe, which wasn't too far from Stoke, and ironically, I ended up working there later in my career, but that's a different story. But the long and the short of it was no internet, no research, nobody to tell me how to get into it. So yes, I, I started looking at product design and architecture as being routes that I could maybe go down with, with my artistic interests and design interests. And uh, I did a foundation course in art and design after school before I was going to go to university. And I'd already applied to 
places like Birmingham uh, University to study product design. But as it transpires, I've always played music. My dad was a musician. He encouraged me to play. So from about 15, 16, I've been playing in bands. And we had a band that one of the tutors on my foundation course, a guy called Paul Ridge, who I'm still friends with now. He's in his 80s these days. I visited him shortly before Christmas to have a pint and catch up. But he started coming to see my band and became a friend. And and one evening after a gig, we were having a pint and a chat. And he said, you really love cars, don't you? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. He said, you ever thought about car design? And I went, oh, yeah, but I have no no idea. He said, well, I have a friend that he he runs the the car design course down at Coventry University. And, and I was literally, there's a car design course? He said, yeah, you can do a degree in uh, transportation design. And I, I was astonished. And I went, could you put me in touch? And in those days, he, he wrote a phone number down on a piece of paper and handed it to me and said, ring this guy. And I called the guy. And it was by coincidence, it was when they were doing the interviews to take on that New Year's students for the for the BA Honours Transportation Design course at Coventry Uni. So I went down in my old Ford Escort with a friend of mine who was also in the band, and we did the interview, and I remember being sat amongst a, a group of young men that all had super renderings of cars that looked like they'd been inspired by Sid Mead paintings, and I got what I'd been doing on my foundation course, which was pencil drawings of gravestones and trees and branches <laughs> But I had done a few car sketches as well because I'd always done them. And luckily, the ones that I showed showed enough potential in me for, for me to get on the course. And, and interestingly, my bandmate, a guy that's now a very successful product designer based in the US, Robert Croft, we both got on the course, which was also highly unusual in those days. So, And then the rest is history. But the reason I like to tell that story is... I've often been asked about, you know, what is it with music and design and you, Wayne? How does it all work together? And I like to think that both sort of, I wouldn't say careers, designers' career, music is a hobby and a pastime for me, but there's been times in my life where one has helped the other and vice versa. And I just think it's nice that it's always been that way. So, yeah, that's, that's how I came to be a car designer. Actually, without dividing that, that one is, let's say, the job and the other one is your hobby, You have two passions, no? And let's call yeah. it like this. You have two passions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's good that, let's say, the, the luck supported you so well that you really became the designer. I mean, the car industry can be really lucky to have you now. And, <laughs> and never okay. call you Thank old, you. actually, because, you know, we have only 15 years of time difference, let's say, of age difference. No? So, And I hope that, let's say, in 15 oh. years, I still think like, wow, full of energy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it looks like much more than that to me, Ludmilla, but, but yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so but basically, you started already, let's say, to, to a picture past how it was. And let's, let's get a bit deeper in that. And mm -hmm. not only getting the right information was different back in the past, but also like, how car design was pragmatically implemented in the first place. You mentioned also like, okay, you were drawing and the, let's say the per people saw already a lot of potential, but nowadays I would not even see that, okay, would the students need still to draw by hand or can they just be so super skillful in using programs, for example? No? So therefore, so in our audience is mainly from tech and engineering. So mm -hmm. could you please explain briefly what are the main differences in a common design process. So what was it like in the past versus how is it now? Well, well, in very simple terms, Ludmilla, it's the difference between a manual process and a digital process. In the past, it was all manual, and nowadays it's all digital. So to expand on that, when I first started in the industry, we all did manual drawing. So you'd start with sketching in color pencils, 
I used to love Charisma Colour Pencils, so I would do all of my initial sketches, probably on A3 paper. And then when I had some designs that I thought were worth developing, I'd then move to marker and pastel renderings. So these are, you know, the, 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 the these are the ones that are historically everybody thinks car designers do and wishes we still did. So I very quickly got into a habit of doing very large ones, so A1s. So that poster behind you where you're sitting in your your office, that's about the size of an A1 rendering. And these would take me a day to do. So for me to do five A1 renderings for a, a, a pr- proposals for a car project, that would be a week's work. Each day, a whole day, probably eight, nine hours working on this rendering with markers and pastel and then using fixative and going in again and just making it. They really were kind of like sort of quick pieces of art. But as I've just explained, it took me five days to put five decent proposals together. When you had a theme chosen, so you'd maybe be allowed to work on those themes for weeks or maybe one month, you then had to do tape drawings because there was no digital modeling software to trans- translate your design ideas into anything physical. So we'd do full-size tape. So you'd put a tape up on the wall. It would be a big, big sheet of mylar and you'd do a full-size tape drawing of a car, and then you'd do front view, rear view, plan view, and sections. The clay modelling team, which were waiting for you to do this, because they couldn't do anything until you'd done that, they would they would build the armature for the car, the full-size model, and they'd load it with clay, and then they'd start taking sections from my tape drawings or the designer's tape drawings, cut a wooden template full-size, and then they would press that into the model or drag it along the model to start making the shape. So everything was done by hand. It was very manual, manual intensive, and it would take months and months and months. And you would probably be looking at from the start of a project and the first pencil sketch to having a a full-size clay model in the studio that looked something like the car that it may one day turn into. That would be the best part of a year normally. So very labor-intensive, very artisanal. Lots to love about the process, and I enjoyed drawing, and I enjoyed running a clay model It was probably my favourite part of the job was running a clay when I was younger. But if you fast forward to today, and I was was at Coventry University last week talking to some of the tutors about how the students work now. It's very digital nowadays. So nearly all young designers can use either Blender software, which is free to download, which is great. It's open source. They They can use it. It's quite intuitive to pick up, although I don't use it myself. But all of the young designers at Ola seem to be able to use it. So they can create their own digital models very quickly. So they tend to go from a, a, a quick sketch in biro on an A4 pad to a digital model that can represent a full-size car, albeit on the screen, in a matter of, of a couple of weeks. And of course, they, they can also use Alias. Alias is more accurate. It's, it's just a more accurate digital modeling tool, which we can then produce, you know, we can actually produce production surfaces with. But... If we like a theme that they've made in Blender, we can then machine it out as a full-size clay. So in theory, you could take a design from a sketch to a machined-out full-size clay in a month now, as opposed to a year. So that's what's really changed is the digital elements have massively compressed the development times. To your question about, you know, do I still need designers to be good at sketching? I don't mind how a designer creates as long as they can as long as they have an output that I can see if they prefer digital models or they prefer to do sketches that's kind of up to them I I'm happy for creatives to work however they're most comfortable but what I've learned is and I'll talk a bit about AI in a minute because I'm getting really excited about artificial intelligence and design at the moment 
you still need the taste and the judgment and the consideration to understand what you're doing in the digital world to get an attractive and appropriate output. And for me, design is becoming more and more about taste and judgment and consideration rather than the, the manual skills that my generation was judged on. In my generation, if you were good at drawing and good at rendering cars, you could probably get somewhere. Whereas now, I actually think it's it's more about design thinking and it's more about understanding what makes a design good because, frankly, you know, most young designers can produce a super-looking digital model and they can render it up so it looks real almost and show that to you in a matter of a week or two, which, you know, if, if me at the age of 20 had seen that, I'd have been like, this guy's landed from another planet. How is he doing this? Or she... So, so yeah, it, the technology has helped us to expedite the process, but you still need to have the right creative thinking to get a good result, no matter what tools you use. By the way, is that also something that's changing? I mean, you, you said just, or she. I mean, how many female designers are out there also? Let's start from the university. In your times and also now, is that also changing? Yes, absolutely. And I'm very pleased to see that companies positively embrace it and 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 look for, for good talent. Diversity, not just across the genders, but across nationalities and, and so on and so forth. But yeah, it's, so to give you a very specific example, Ludmilla, when I did my degree course, which 1988 was when I started, we had one, one female design candidate, Katie, I remember her well. She was the only one in 42, 42 students. And then if I fast forward to today, most design studios... You know, that they'll be, it's still probably, it's more than 50% male, but, you know, some, some of the studios, if I think about Volvo and Polestar, where they've been very good at developing and recruiting their, their female team members, you know, they're, they're probably 60, 40, 70, 30, something like that, which is great to see. Mm -hmm. And I think as the world is changing, mobility solutions and how we go about them are changing, it's just opening more and more doors for a more diverse group of creatives, as I say, from all around the world regardless of gender, to, to play a part. So it, it's it, it's very encouraging. It's changed a lot. One girl on my course versus, you know, many in the studio. Yeah, we are getting there, absolutely. Yeah. And something that is absolutely needed. And actually, are you getting, let's say, nostalgic about that past? Do you miss some kind of elements of your daily life? What, what let's say, your day-to-day -day task look like? Or you say like, oh, okay, full speed ahead, everything that is AR and... VR and so on. So yeah, that's something that you support and you want to see that more and more in your life. Yeah, very much that's the case for me, Ludmilla. And I recognize I'm, I'm possibly not typical of, of designers my age, but as much as I enjoy drawing and, and working on a clay model as my main role and spending, you know, weeks and months doing that, I actually really enjoy what I'm doing now, which is working with a young team of creatives, helping them be the best they can be, working with them to use all of these new softwares that I would never have a clue about. AI software, it's it's a complete enigma to me. And I have young guys on the team and a young guy who's specifically interested. And he's been showing the team how to use it, how to use it in a creative way. And it's 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 astonishing. And again, that will expedite the process even faster. But again, I'm reassured that I'm not threatened by AI because I can see that it's about the inputs you give it and the, the thought process that you apply to give it inputs and then curating its outputs. So, you know, it, it's very different from drawing manually. I don't deny that. But you still have to give it good information and you have to choose its outputs carefully to, to get a good result from it. 
And, and all of that kind of new technology that comes with working with younger designers, millennials, Gen Zs, that, that doesn't naturally occur or appear to me. So I, I enjoy what I do now as much as I did when I was younger. It's, it's very different, but I get satisfaction for different reasons. And I guess it's also like, okay, stepping back and seeing the result of whatever AI produced, let's say, and seeing like, okay, does it touch you emotionally? Because design has to be functional, but also like pleasing visually, but also like, okay, it has to move you emotionally somehow. And you can prove that. And no machine in the world can do that for you. Exactly. It's, it, it's just another tool in the toolbox for creatives to use from my point of view. And, and, and where you use it in the process is, is still to be defined. But we, we're using it very early on in the creative process at the moment. And it's just it's putting other ideas onto the table that we may not have thought of ourselves. And for me, I'm very open to new ideas coming in. And if they're coming in from a guy's sketchbook or a girl's sketchbook, or if they're coming in from an AI sort of piece of software that's been prompted by a designer, so he or she has controlled what goes in and out, I'm kind of equally happy with that as well. As long as it's not plagiarism, then then I'm fine with it. Yeah, that's another topic now with AI and plagiarism. Yeah. So that's yeah, really yeah, absolutely. How, and how yeah. to control it. But I mean, it will also create more more jobs opportunities. Yeah. Let's see it in a positive yeah. way. No? So, and cybersecurity yes. opportunities. So I see that you are super enthusiastic about the future developments and we will come to that in a minute. But let's first look a little bit again in the past because you were responsible for numerous great car models in your professional life so far. You have worked on many brilliant concept cars, especially so what were the highlights of that and why? Well, I've been very lucky to, to have worked for some fantastic brands over, over my sort of 30 plus years in the, the industry. If I think about highlights, and I go right back to the beginning, so the first job I ever had was working for London Taxis International, and I worked on what became the TX1 taxi. And at the time, you know, it was a recession. It was 1992. And much as I wanted to work for Jaguar or Aston Martin or Ferrari or whoever, the company that I could get work with was you know, providing mobility solutions in a, in a sort of public transport context. Not glamorous, but I learned so much. And the guy that employed me, a chap called Jevon Thorpe, I'm still very good friends with to this day. In fact, I was in a meeting with him yesterday talking about mobility solutions, in fact. But I learned so much about it because designing a taxi, there's so many things to consider. Accessibility for all, accessibility for the partially ambulant, for the partially sighted, wheelchair users, you had to take all of that consideration in and, and providing an inclusive transport solution that was instantly recognizable, was also unthreatening and approachable and, and people felt safe around it. These were all kind of things that I'd not previously considered, but are very fundamental in how you create a, a London taxi. And, and while it wasn't glamorous, I, I had such a good experience because I learned about all of these kind of inclusive accessibility requirements but also the, the company didn't have a design studio we didn't have any clay modelers so we did it all ourselves there was myself Jevon uh, a guy that used to run the pattern making shop which is a, that's a skill from the 1950s but a guy called Charlie Law who turned his hand to clay modeling and then the engineer who also turned out to be a great clay modeler and pattern maker a guy called Steve Dunn so Jevon Charlie Law Steve Dunn and myself we we put ourselves in a little corner of the factory We got a, a plate that we could do the clay on and we did it all ourselves. So it was an incredible piece of learning for me. And I made a lifelong friend out of it. So that was really good. 
And then I was lucky after a few years there, I moved into consultancy. I worked for a company called Omni Design. And, and strangely enough, mid-90s, I found myself back in, in Crewe, near to where my mum and dad lived, working at Rolls-Royce and Bentley. And I actually went and stayed in my old bedroom for a, a year while we did the job. Uh, and I worked on the exterior and the interior of the Rolls-Royce Seraph and Bentley Arnage. Uh, and again, felt incredibly lucky at my age. I was mid-20s, early 20s to be working on a product like that for a brand like that that had been a big part of my life being a kid growing up in Stoke-on-Trent. Rolls-Royce at that time were referred to as the best vehicles in the world. So, so that was, that was a, a sort of a proud moment for me. And then I got the, my dream job. So it was August 1997 when I started at Jaguar. I went from Omni to Jaguar uh, and became um, what was called a principal designer, so a sort of like first-level manager there working for the late Jeff Lawson. He was the design director at Jaguar at the time. An interesting story, if you'll indulge me. Have I got time to tell this very quickly? Yes, you have. You have. So I got tipped off by one of my friends in the clay modelling world that they were recruiting a, a, a principal designer, a design manager. So I made the call and I spoke to a guy called Simon Butterworth, who, again, I'm lifelong friends with. But he set up an interview for me and Jeff Lawson. And I walked into Jeff Lawson's office and uh, it, it was filled with pictures of muscle cars, and he had a guitar hanging on the wall. And and Jeff, he'd, he'd, he'd grown up in a time where he'd spent a lot of time in the US working for General Motors, so he spoke with this mid-Atlantic drawl, sounded a bit like a film star, and he, he had the moustache, and he just looked very, very film star-like, so I was a bit in awe. But we talked about muscle cars, and, and then I said I was a guitarist, and he just had this this Jaguar Fender Stratocaster made that was hanging on his wall. And we talked about music and guitar playing. And after about an hour, he said, I better have a look at your portfolio then, Wayne. We hadn't opened my portfolio at all. He literally flicked through it in five minutes and said, yeah, okay, you can have a job. <laughs> I walked out of the room thinking, that was the best interview I've ever had in my life. And we didn't even talk about my portfolio. Maybe it says something. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I guess it says something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I was very lucky then at Jaguar to... The first job I did was, was the X-Type, which was kind of a tactical project between Ford and, and Jaguar. But again, good learning for me. But the, the, the projects at Jaguar that stick in my mind were chief designer on the XF, which is a big turning point vehicle for, for Jaguar. By this time, Jeff had, Jeff had sadly passed away a couple of years after I joined, and Ian Callum had come in uh, uh, to, to lead design, and Ian was very committed to, uh, to establishing a new design language for Jaguar and, and modernising Jaguar, which, which was we all got behind and, and 100% thought this is a great, great way to move us forward. And Ian gave me the opportunity to work on the XF. He also seconded me to Aston Martin, where I worked on the DB9 and what became the Vantage with him. So that was a tremendous opportunity. Again, we didn't have a studio, so we, we moved into the stores building next to the Jaguar Design Studio and set up in a corner of the stores building. And the DB9 was created in, in the corner of the stores at Jaguar Whitley. So that was a great opportunity, and it's a car that's aged very well. And I learned a lot from Ian, and again, still a lifelong friend of mine. I remember some of, the, some of Ian's quotes that have stayed with me forever. You know, Wayne, if in doubt, leave it out. And that approach to sort of, you know, not minimalism, but just putting the, the right amount of features or lines onto a car and being disciplined about how you approach design. I, I learned from Ian. So yeah, DB9, XF, and then I was chief designer on F-Type, which was kind of Jaguar's new E-Type. 
which when Tata bought Jaguar, Mr. Tata, Ratan Tata himself, he was like, why doesn't Jaguar have a modern day E-Type? And, and we didn't have an answer for him. So we got on and did it. And, and that was a tremendous privilege to work on that car too. So I've been very lucky. That was a bit of a potted history as well, wasn't it? So yeah, Taxi, DB9, Rolls-Royce and Bentley, Jaguar XF, Jaguar F-Type. And of course the I-Pace, which was Jaguar's first electric SUV. And, and that was, a, that was a, a good learning experience too, because it was the first electric vehicle that I'd worked on. So that was that was a really good experience and taught me a lot. And since then, so we worked on that in the 2014, 2015 era is when we were developing it. Since then, I've worked pretty much exclusively on electric vehicles with, with hardly any exception. So, yeah, good, a, good, a good grounding. It's so interesting to see that all pieces that you did somehow, like, like a puzzles, you know, that they all fit together. I mean, you started with working on mobility solutions. And that's yeah. where you are now, let's say, at All Electrics. Yeah. Now. In ap April 2021, you started at All Electrics, and now you are really indeed working on new mobility solutions. And what is also very, very fitting, you had it several times in your career, as I heard that now, you have to start to build your own design center, let's say, no? from zero, basically, yeah. more or less. <laughs> and you, back you, again, you, and you learned that. <laughs> yeah, you, you could say that's kind of a bad habit of mine, I think, actually. I've, I've probably put together more design studios than any designer deserves to, really. And I don't know how it's come about. It's just, it's always been something that I've, I've found myself doing. And I, I don't know why. I don't know, I don't know what the circumstances are. But yes, yeah, I'm, I'm quite experienced at putting design studios together by now. And what was, let's say, the, the challenge that really attracted you to go and to accept that offer from All Electric? I'd been looking at the industry kind of on a personal level for, for a couple of years. And I'd written a couple of opinion pieces and shared it with, with friends at the university and, and had some discussions about how our landscape and our industry is changing. And, and what I could see is that, you know, the, the legacy manufacturers, the OEMs that have had a long history in producing internal combustion engine powered vehicles, they, they had a, a big task to, to take on because for many of them, it was just about, well, well, we'll stop making vehicles with an ICE engine and we'll start making vehicles an electric motor. But as you know, it's a much bigger picture than that. You know, the way that we consume mobility has changed massively. We have Generation Zs and actually Millennials that don't particularly want to own a vehicle for lots of reasons, whether it's cost or the environment. You know, they want to consume mobility as a convenience. That's why there's been such an exponential rise in companies like Ola Cabs and Uber, etc. because people just want the convenience of going onto a phone app and saying, right, I want to go from here to here at this time. Thank you very much. So I saw that that was becoming important. I saw that personal mobility was becoming increasingly important particularly post-pandemic, where there are still some anxieties about using the Tube in New York or, or London, where, you know, even I, and I've used both since, the you know, we've come out of the pandemic, thank goodness, but you always do feel a little bit vulnerable that you're surrounded by so many people, and if any anything was transmittable, that would be the place where you'd maybe pick something up. So I understand the anxieties that, that linger about public transport, whether they're true and, and provable with statistics, I, I don't know. So personal mobility was interesting me as well. And emerging economies and nations where personal mobility has become very important because, you know, when, when, when countries first mobilize and industrialize, you know, you can't instantly have your workforce afford a car. 
they, but they they need to get to and from work, and they need something that can get them there and back that's that's more affordable. So, personal mobility was something that I thought, yeah, this is a growth area. So I considered all of these things: how we consume mobility, the the changing environment, the changing global picture post COVID, the anxieties about public transport, and thought, well, Ola offers much of this already. They have a ride hailing company. They are kind of a tech company that is that knows a lot about apps. They know a lot about how mobility is consumed. They 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 at that time they were just getting into manufacturing the what is now our S one scooter and our S one Pro scooter. So they got the EV personal mobility bit covered. And then I had an interview with Babish on a Sunday evening. And Babish is a young man. He's he's thirty seven, incredibly driven, very inspirational, much younger than me. I realised that he'd achieved so much in a decade and he, he was fearless. He'd, he'd never failed at anything. And we talked about mobility and I talked about how I saw the industry. And, and I found that we agreed a lot. And we talked about, you know, the design world and talent pools and leveraging the UK and working with India with a Bangalore team and all of that stuff. And we were just very aligned. We even talked about urban air mobility. And I remember him saying, Wayne, one day I'm going to make a flying car. And and I thought, you know what? I wouldn't bet against this happening at all. And and interestingly, just at that time, they put out an April Fool video about exactly that, which showed that they got a good sense of humor too. So all of these things made me think, you know what? I, I think this is a great company, and I think it's somewhere where I can help them succeed, and and, and you know, it could be a good place for me. So yes, that's why I joined Ola Electric. That's the story behind that. Very good yeah. to know now. <laughs> yeah. And. How can we imagine your professional everyday life nowadays, especially considering that you are the bridge between two countries, UK and India, when it comes to design at All Electric? Well, unsurprisingly, there's a lot of this goes on, Ludmilla. So there's lots of Zoom calls. There's actually lots of travel as well. My life has been made much easier since Ola appointed Kripa Ananthan to run the India studio. So Kripa and I speak every day. We have a Zoom call every morning where we talk about the workloads for each studio, how we can work together. The way that we see it is it's it's one studio spread across two continents rather than two separate studios competing. So the workload is shared out amongst us. I do regular trips to India, as, as you've seen as well. I, I tend to try and go over there for design reviews to spend time with, with Kripa and Bavish and the team over there. But yeah, it's interesting because I joined during the pandemic, so I couldn't travel for the first six months that I was an employee. And interestingly, and this is another reason why Ola excites me so much as a company, they built the largest two-wheel EV manufacturing facility in the world in those six months since I joined the company. So I joined in April. I saw a tweet from Bavish of the first pylon being driven into the ground for the battery. And then I was I could travel out there in September that year. So I stayed there September through October and ended up doing an impromptu little little speech at the inauguration of the factory. So from, from the end of April to October, they built this enormous EV manufacturing facility. And I thought, well, there's there's evidence that these, you know, these guys at Ola do break paradigms. But yeah, back to working remotely via Zoom during the pandemic, one thing that I did find actually quite useful is we as designers tend to communicate as withdrawings. You know, a, a, it's the old cliche, a picture can speak a thousand words. And I found doing digital reviews and design reviews where I could draw on the screen as I was talking to the designers and the digital modelers was actually much more effective than perhaps me being stood next to them in the room and drawing on a piece of paper and saying, now interpret that. I could literally draw the section 
on their model on the screen. So in some respects, there was an efficiency by working remotely. So yeah, we we make it work. You know, there's there's lots of travel. There's lots of using uh, digital. There's we use VR a lot, so we can do shared VR between the studios. So I can be stood in Coventry. The design team can be stood in Bangalore, and we can be in the same cyberspace together with our little avatars, our little Union Jack on my chest, and our Indian flags on our chest. So it's it's quite interesting seeing all of these avatar robots floating around with our little flags on around the digital model. But yeah, we we make it work. It's a little bit sounds a little bit like gaming, you know. I mean, were you oh, yes. a gamer when when you were growing up? Not at all. Not, at all. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Not in any way, shape, or form. But no, you're absolutely right, Ludmilla. Gaming is a big factor in our industry, and gaming software. So Unreal Engine, UE UE4 now UE5. We find that incredibly useful in the car industry because it's a gaming platform. So lots of the famous ones, Grand Theft Auto. Gran Turismo, they're all on UE5, but we actually now use it to visualize, render, and animate cars. And we can actually use UE5 in the virtual world. So exactly that. We can be together using the same kind of gaming software, but to create vehicle designs. And in the end, happy people also bring better results. So when you have fun at work, it's always even better for your progress. Absolutely. Now let's talk a little bit more about the design language of all electric brand. And if you have to describe that in just three words. I would say pure, authentic and audacious. Pure, authentic and audacious. Okay. Yes. Okay, I will give you also some time to explain that <laughs> because I need an explanation. Now. <laughs> okay, so it, it, it's very interesting working for a brand that doesn't have a legacy of products, vehicles. So we've kind of gone very much back to first principles and our CEO, Bavish Agarwal, is, is very involved with us on this. Uh, Bavish is a big believer in form following function. So we take a very purist approach to how we create things. We, we There's nothing in the designs we're creating that is there just for decoration. Nothing is superfluous. Everything serves a purpose, you know, from the aerodynamics of the exterior to the ergonomics and the UXI, UI of the interior. It, everything is there for a reason. So we're very pure and authentic in that capacity. And, you know, probably more at Ola than anywhere I've worked, form following function is a is a big kind of philosophy that we, we try and adhere to. Audacious because I think we will do things, well, I know that we will do things that nobody expects because we don't really see boundaries or paradigms. Paradigms are there to be broken. So I... I With my knowledge of what we're up to at the moment, which obviously I can't tell you about, I think we're going to surprise a lot of people with what we do. So th th those are the sort of brief explanations for pure, authentic and audacious. Actually, very nice mindset not to have any kind of limitation. Like it very much. And I also saw the recently launched product. So it was also like, wow. And it was especially in white, you know, which makes it even more pure and it's even more visible. Even, you know, designers do not like when it's something in white or black because you don't, don't see the shape so well. But this yeah. puristic approach that was really visible, so I even commented on that now because it was really, yes, it was standing out, actually. And, and I have to say, you know, I take no personal responsibility for the appearance of the scooter. It was, it was created before I got there, so all credit to the team, you know, before I arrived. It was, it was those guys that did that, but they had that mindset before I arrived anyway. I've just worked with it, and now I work with Crippida to keep it going. 
But I guess, I mean, at, at your position, it's also not just about you doing that. You have just the, let's say, the final decision. Okay, let's go for it. But you create anyway as a team, right? Is that correct? That yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. My, my job for decades now has been about taste and judgment and guiding people and, and, and getting to the right answer and, and just giving them the benefit of my experience and saying, well, look, you know, for these reasons, I think this would be a good, a good approach. Yeah. I do still do the odd sketch and drawing if I, I want to communicate an idea or or if I have an idea that I think is worthy, I'll say, you know, have a look at this. But it's 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 about helping the young creatives on the team achieve their goals and and, and just guiding them like like a shepherd. <laughs> and now, actually, let's uh, summarize a bit what, what we said just previously for that part so that in the past automotive designers designed cars. Be it concept cars or street cars, doesn't matter. But nowadays, designers create mobility solutions. And now we are focusing on the future. So what are the trends that you see up to date for these days? Well, yeah, I guess I've, I've spoken about it a little bit already, haven't I? I? Personal mobility is definitely a massively expanding market all around the world, whether it's Europe, the Far East, India. Personal mobility is definitely on the rise. And this tends to manifest itself in the sort of two-wheeler form factor sort of categories. So I see that just being exponential, even in the US where, you know, people like big vehicles, but you can see that people want to have a personal EV solution, whether it's a scooter or, or something along those lines. And that, that's just becoming a global phenomenon. I think also mobility on demand and mobility on demand can extend from, you know, you ordering your next cab to go from your studio to the, the railway station or whatever. But it could also be the subscription service where you consume different mobility solutions via a supplier over the you know over the space of a contract so you may want to move home at the weekend and therefore you need a van so you have the van for for this week and the weekend but then actually you're commuting to work and you only need a, a scooter an electric scooter for your commute to work so then you change the vehicle i think that those kind of subscription services to provide mobility are also on the rise i think the challenge for manufacturers and oems is how you supply those profitably, how you create the products profitably so that it works for both the consumer and the manufacturer. But the solutions will come because we can see with the millennial generation and the Gen Zs, that's how they want to use mobility. They're not, they're not interested in ownership in the way that my generation was. So I think that's quite interesting as well. I think also that the, the fact, just because I work for Ola, but also I, I see it as, You know, mobility on demand in the world of, of, of cabs and cabs that are basically delivered via an app and the creation of apps. So the look and feel of apps and the UX, UI of, of how they appear on your smartphone screen next to Facebook, Google, whatever. The design of that interface is becoming massively important as well, because, again, the younger generations, they're judging mobility providers on how that app works relative to their social media apps. So you're competing in a completely different segment to open the door to your business. So for me, UX UI is becoming massively important because it's the first point of contact for many consumers of, of mobility solutions. They they look at the app, they, they judge how good the app works and how it looks and feels, and that then colors their perception of the, the whole business behind it, if you like, the iceberg behind the app. So that's that's really important too. So those are those are kind of the trends that I see continuing to rise. 
I could just check off, let's say, okay, agree, 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 because I'm millennial, you are, I can really yeah. like prove it myself. Yes, so therefore, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely true. And do you see also some new trends where you see like, no, that's only hype that will stay here just for a short moment and then it will disappear again? Probably more in, in kind of design language. So the, what I observe, and, and again, it's because I've been in the industry a long time now, so After 30 plus years, you see cycles and you see fashions. Even in car design, they come and go. You know, the car design tends to go from being hard-edged and quite constructed to softer and more organic and fluid, and then back again. And at the moment, what I see is there's, and again, it's it's driven by designers coming into the business that are your age and, and younger, that, that, you know, they didn't grow up in the 1970s like me. So they see sort of 70s concept cars get very inspired by them and then create their own products, which look very, to me, very 1970s. So there's there's definitely a retro trend in car design that I see at the moment, which retro is not a, it's not a bad thing for me. I think a retro product done done well can be very successful. You know, I, I cite the, the Mini and the Fiat 500 as two great examples of retro designs that have certainly resonated with their customers. But The thing with retro is it tends to have a shelf life and it tends to be a bit of a design cul-de-sac. You know, you, you kind of do a, a retro-inspired product, but how do you then develop it? And if I kind of look at how Mini is developing, it's becoming increasingly sort of a, a bit of a distortion of what it was. So I, then you kind of think, well, wouldn't it be better to just move forward and break the mold at that point? So yeah, one of the trends I see right now that I don't think will last, and I've seen it come and go before, is, is sort of retro-inspired design. Yeah, that, 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 that's my view on that. And actually, in design, you do also always a lot of studies and research before you put something into reality. You know? So, And yes, it might be that my next question is a bit naive, but I mean, I do not come from design, so I can ask whatever question I like. So therefore, you know, it's like, it's good to be an outsider sometimes and to have this outsider look. So have you also done any studies that look at whether people enjoy more out of ordinary design for everyday things? or whether more classic or calmer, let's say, purer design is preferred. Do you have any insights on that? Well, over the years, I've been involved in lots of research clinics for lots of products, all automotive, as you might imagine. We've never specifically tested, you know, how receptive an audience is to something, you know, groundbreaking versus more conventional. But that we've kind of got that feedback for free in the products that we show because you tend to show at research clinics probably five themes that range from something quite a conservative development of where the marketplace is now to something quite avant-garde and challenging. What I've found consistently is that people tend to, they, they gravitate, customers gravitate towards what they know and what they feel comfortable with. And if I reference sort of the premium vehicle segment where I've spent most of my career, they also want to reinforce their purchase decision. So I can quote specific examples because it's years after now, but when we were researching the Jaguar F-Type, for example, if you talk to XK owners, Jaguar XK owners, current ones on the West Coast of America, for example, they were like, well, don't, don't change my lovely XK that I've just bought and spent a fortune on too much because that would contradict my purchase decision. So they, they tend to want to reinforce, you know, I, I like what I've got because I chose it, so it's right. So they tend to be a bit more kind of risk-averse. And the way that you get groundbreaking design through in the car industry is, is it tends to be via concept vehicles. So you'll show a concept that could be very 
very avant-garde, very, very challenging, very confrontational. And you'll see what the reaction from the industry and from people is. And then you make your decision about, well, are we going to be brave or are we going to step back a little bit from this? Yeah, a good example is the Cybertruck from Tesla. When, when it was revealed, you know, it's a very, very edgy, sharp, challenging, aggressive looking vehicle for a bit of a black sky future scenario in many respects. You know, not, not, not a particularly optimistic sort of background for, for it to, to exist against. But it really divided the car design community. Uh, you know, some people loved it. Youngsters generally loved it. More experienced designers like myself, uh, I'm not saying myself, but guys my age were more resistant. You know, oh, it's naive. It needs needs it needs lead and it needs crown. It needs all of these surface modifications. But it made a huge statement. And a lot of people loved the fact that they challenged it. But I guarantee if you'd have taken that quietly into a research clinic, and asked current customers, you know, guys that own current Tesla S's or threes, they'd have probably really struggled with it. And you'd have probably walked out with a, you shouldn't do this direction. So I think you've kind of sometimes got to trust the designers in the organization or or the inspirational leaders, in fact, because, you know, that's also where this comes from. And, and go, you know what, we're going to do something really brave here. We'll, we'll win enough people over to make it stick. But yeah, in summary, the the research that I've been involved with over the years has tended to indicate that customers will will err on the side of conservatism, and really you have to you have to take a brave pill as an organisation and put something out there that you believe in, and then just take people on the journey with you. That that's the way to get progressive design forwards, I think. And that means also you do not see really differences in that because. For me, it's, it's a cliche, let's say, that the people are more brave in Asian parts of the world when it comes also to design and purchasing and, let's say, what is modern and what is attracting for them. But it seems, you say, like, okay, it's more people like what they already know, what they are convenient with. So it's yeah. really in both parts of the world? Yeah, well, I think, again, if you look at sort of the legacy brands that exist in Europe and the Western world versus the Far East, where they're, they tend to be younger brands, startup brands, so they're not so protective of their design legacy. So, you know, if you think of a big company like Volkswagen Group or General Motors, where they've got this big history and, and a corporate look and feel, they, they're quite protective of that as they move forwards. Whereas in China, you know, most of the car manufacturers have only existed for the last 15, 20 years at the most. Those are the oldest ones. You know, there's, there's many which are much younger so they don't have to be so protective of a brand that didn't exist back then. So they can be a little bit braver with what they're doing. But you also do find that, you know, because vehicles, EVs are very driven by aerodynamics, for example, because it, it's, it's, a, it's a means of extending range. At the, the end of the day, aerodynamics is driven by physics. It will drive things to look the same because you physically have to put the car in the same places. So there's there's a little bit of a... Not a concern, but an observation from me that, you know, as, as hopefully electric vehicles, electric saloons become more popular and we do less SUVs and more cars because they're a more efficient form factor, that they don't all end up looking the same because they're driven by the same aerodynamic requirements because there is a danger that that will happen. Especially you have done a lot of SUVs now, so that fast is now over, it's enough. So yeah. actually, where do you get your best ideas? Is it something like a systematic approach that you say, okay, when I do this process, 
step one, two, three, then I will come to some inspiration. Or is it something that, let's say, you have your particular sources of yeah, inspiration? Beat music, for example, no? so I guess. Well, yeah. So for me, it's always through collaboration. It's through riffing off other people, whether it's in a music studio jamming with four other musicians in a band or whether it's in a design studio sharing ideas and, and discussing design with 30 other designers. The process for me is the same. It's collaboration. I, I've said many times before that, you know, I, I always think two heads are better than one. I've never, ever thought I was the cleverest person in the room. I'm always interested to hear what other people have got to say. And quite often, you know, the, somebody will have an idea that somebody else will go, yeah, but wouldn't it be great if you did this to that? Or wouldn't it be great if we combine this with that? Or have you thought about doing it this way? It, it almost always leads to a better solution. So for me, it's about collaboration, and I enjoy that. And same with songwriting as well. You know, you walk into the room with some riffs, play it to the guys, and they'll go, yeah, great, but what about if we do this? For me, that's that's a really enjoyable part. The the collaborative co-creation bit is 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 what really excites me and always has really. You know, I when I was younger, obviously you'd start with your own ideas, but then you'd show it to the guys in the studio and you'd get their inputs. So it's 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 only a singular process for a very small period of time. And and at kind of my level now, it's never that. It's always collaborative. But that's really good that at, even at your level, you say like you are still open-minded, you are interested in hearing the, let's say, suggestions from other people that are maybe less experienced. No? So Because at a certain point, you are the most experienced person in the room. So yeah. that's just true. Yeah. And also to overcome that so that the people are willing to communicate to you, even if there's this kind of hierarchy level, you know? One of the things I observe about millennials and Gen Zs is they 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 have a very kind of strong confidence in themselves in terms of their their points of view so i find actually very few are inhibited around me they they tend to know no these these are my views and this is what i believe which i i'm, I'm more than happy to hear them say but it's not like my generation where we were very very respective and almost fearful of authority so you'd be like well i'm not going to say anything because the, the boss is speaking we don't live in a world like that now young people will say no this is my point of view and Whoever you are, I'm going to tell you what I think, and I'm I'm absolutely fine with that. Every everybody has a valid opinion and a valid perspective. I guess the truth, let's say, or the the art of it is even somewhere in the middle. Let's say to be respectful, but still to say in your opinion and to stand up if something is really important to you. Right? Yeah, and 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 just to be receptive of other people's ideas and thoughts. You know, it goes both ways, doesn't it? You know, you have to be able to listen as well as to to speak. Now we're at the right topic because let's talk a little bit about communication. So at All Electrics, you have to navigate between several cultures. So And in design, you always have to communicate between, let, let me exaggerate that now, between the creative designers and the very, very pragmatic engineers. No? So which guidelines of communication have you found to be super important in order to avoid misunderstandings or to prevent them to arising in the first place? Well, I think because of the industry we're in, there's a very simple answer to this, which is back to my, uh, you know, a picture paints a thousand words. What inevitably I found myself doing is I'll draw something. If, if I'm struggling to communicate the idea or the solution, I'll draw it. And you normally find that even if you're not quite connecting in terms of the, and let's be clear, you know, everybody speaks brilliant English. So I'm very lucky in as much that, you know, because I can't speak any Hindi or any of the other languages. But 
I'm very lucky that we all, we can all speak English together. So the communication on that point of view is very good. Uh, far less challenging than working further east uh, for obvious reasons. But I find drawing, and it was the same when I was at Jaguar or Aston Martin or Rolls or Bentley, when you're working with engineers, if you can demonstrate to them, you know, this is what I'm talking about. This is how I think it can work. That tends to work well. And I think with engineers uh, or the engineering community, it's an age-old kind of banter that goes on between design and engineering where they like to challenge each other, we like to challenge them, they like to challenge us. I find if you can kind of draw and explain something, you're kind of proving that you know, you, you understand your, your your subject matter. And I think when someone can see that, then there's a little bit of respect there and, and then they'll start working with you. So it's it's you build bridges by demonstrating capability and, and cooperation. Uh, and as I say... You know, it, it's a massively old cliche, and I find that I, I I talk in cliches sometimes, and it's not my fault. It's just who I am and how I am. But yeah, a picture definitely paints a thousand words when it comes to communicating an idea. And when we summarize that, let's say, how would you describe your leadership style and how it um, has changed over the years? Well, I, I think um, it, when you're young, you're very self-focused. It's about your career and growing your career. And then as you as you rise to, into the management levels, you are, you're then responsible for a, a group of people and you're responsible for their output, but you're also responsible for their well-being and how they enjoy their daily lives and, 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 and getting the best out of them. So at the highest level, it's gone over the years from being more self-focused to more team-focused. Uh, what I try and be is, is I try and be supportive. I try... Try and be a good listener, be receptive to other people's ideas. Um, I, I try and be encouraging of young talents. I, I, you know, again, one of the things I often say is, you know, th this makes me uncomfortable or I don't quite understand it, but I can see that it's there's a potentially good idea in there. So you run with it and and I'll I'll support you. Uh, and and that's that's part of again the joy of working with with a younger team now is they they do stuff and they. They approach things in a very different way to, to how I would have done. Uh, and I get quite excited by that. And sometimes it's good in, in the creative world to feel uncomfortable. You know, if we just kept on doing what we were comfortable, a bit like our conversation about research, if we just keep on doing what makes us comfortable, how do we progress anything? So you've got to expose yourself to a bit of, you know, oh, I don't know if I did, I wouldn't have done this myself, but I can see that there's an opportunity Uh, and, I, and I like trying to encourage people to do that. Uh, again, where where I put the guardrails around them is is the it's the taste and judgment piece. It's like, okay, if something is fundamentally badly proportioned, it's never going to be attractive, no matter what what styling you might dirty word there styling. But whatever you do to the surface language, if it's fundamentally badly proportioned, if it's really tall with tiny wheels, it's not going to work. So you just have to put in the, you know, these are the basic guidelines to what makes things attractive. And it all starts with proportions, as we all know. And even things like the golden section, they apply just as well in car design as they do to a 17th century painting. So it's it, that's the, the approach I take. But it's it's to be encouraging, be receptive, be supportive, you know. And that's not to say that I don't, if if somebody really isn't, isn't kind of delivering as a designer or they maybe aren't, aren't really in the right part of, of the business, then then again, I'll try and have a, a constructive conversation about guiding them to the right part of the business.
the thing that never works for me, sorry, LaBelle, I'm, go, I'm going on here, I know, but... Uh, Keep on going. <laughs> yeah, just to criticise somebody and walk away does nobody any good. Uh, I see no value in that whatsoever. You've always got to be positive in your conversations with people because you've got to give them a way of moving forward. You've got to give them help. You've got to help them grow. Um, you know, I, I, when I started my career, I was lucky I've worked with some very nice guys. I've, I've worked with some tough characters as well, which is a different subject. But the guys that come into the room and shout at people and just tell everybody that everything's rubbish and walk away, uh, what good did that do? It demoralises people. It doesn't give them a, a, a clear way of moving forwards. There's, there's no value in that. So that, that would, it's never been my way. Now we are talking about, let's say, um, you as a mentor, you as a leader, and when you have to compete with somebody, how are you then? When I have to compete with somebody? Um, it's been a long time since I've had to, really, I guess. Uh, um, when I was younger, I was competitive, but I, I've always, you know, and I guess this still applies to how I am now. I try and focus on myself. Um, I try and focus on doing the best job that I can do and be the best version of me, really. Um, I find it's 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 an energy draining um, pursuit to to look at your competitors and and think how you can better them. Better to focus on how you can do the best job or deliver the best solutions in, in your own sphere of influence. So yeah, I, I was I was more competitive when I was younger. Nowadays, I try and see the big picture all the time, and and I don't know. I, it, being competitive has its place. But I find it can be quite energy consuming and I don't know that it necessarily delivers good results. Maybe even not, no, but it's very, very kind approach. And actually yeah. now we are slowly, slowly, but transitioning to the second part of our interview and our listeners already know it. In each episode, we come to a point where we address self-development, lessons learned and life wisdom. So let's get started. There are some questions Wayne Burgess has never answered in an interview before so far in his whole life. Just my assumption that that's the case, okay? So, Wayne, just looking at your CV, your career already looks very, very impressive. So, impressive and successful. But everyone, really, I learned that in my life, really everyone gets their own challenges in life. So, what was your biggest challenge so far and how did you cope with it? Well, well, I think that's a really good question, and it's it's a really good point to raise that that you know we, everybody has challenges in life, and and day to day we we probably don't see it, we don't know it. For me, it was the birth of my my son. So eleven years ago, uh, my wife gave birth to our beautiful twin boys, um, but, but unfortunately, one of them was born with a a very rare condition called Golden Heart Syndrome, and. Um, It, it's so rare. I, apparently, I, the odds were better for me to win the lottery than to have a child with Golden Heart Syndrome. But there you go. That's life, isn't it? But it instantly kind of changed my world. Golden Heart, just to explain, it uh, it limits the craniofacial development in people that have it. So in the case of my son, he's got a missing left ear and his his jaw's not quite developed properly. So his his face is a little skewed. He's beautiful. He's you know he's he's my he's my hero. Uh, along with his brother. But he had a very tough first three years. He, he couldn't eat. He had a major operation the day after he was born. My wife had had a, a cesarean section, so she was in one hospital in Coventry, and then I had to go to a different hospital in Leicester with, with my son so that he could have his operation. So we were separated, and 
we were in intensive care in Leicester and my wife was still recovering in Coventry. So that was very difficult. You know, our, our children had just been born and we were we were literally 40 miles away from each other. Um, but it made me think about, you know, how's his life going to be? He had lots of challenges. He had, he had to have lots of operations. As I say he couldn't eat, he couldn't eat till the age of three. Um, the first week after he was born, the, the, the NHS, which are wonderful in the UK, but they tend to try and give you the worst case scenario to prepare you for it. So a lady doctor sat me down in A&E and said, um, well, he's got a fused vertebrae, so he may have trouble walking. Um, he's got missing ears, so he may have trouble hearing, which means he may have trouble learning to speak. Um, he's got a lot of bowel troubles, which he was having operations for, so we don't know whether he'll eat or... Uh, he'd, he'd also got a missing lung and a... It, it was just crikey! Can it, will he be able to live? What life will he live? Um, and it just made me therefore think about well, the, I need to focus on my son now. I need to focus on my family. Um, stop being so career focused and and focus on that. And I thought about his his visible differences and and how that might impact his life and and our lives. Uh, so that made me think. Well, do you know what? I'm not the only person going through this. And you know, my my son isn't the only. And we went to a few groups that with other people with with kids that had had similar similar challenges, uh, and they were a wonderful bunch of people, the most empathetic, strong, kind, just brilliant human beings. Some of which I had maintained contact with. One of which is now the mayor of Milton Keynes, uh, interestingly, which shows the strength of character that she has. But it made me think. Well, do you know what? When I'm dealing with people on a day to day basis. I don't know what their lives are like. I, I don't know what they might. They might have a son like mine. Um, and, and, you know, every day I go to work and, and it turns out one of my good friends at Jaguar Land Rover, at the same time that my son was born, within a matter of weeks, his daughter developed cancer. So he had that big challenge and, and we'd look across the studio at each other during the day and he'd be in a meeting and I'd be in a meeting and maybe, you know, engineers were giving me a hard time or designers, he was a clay modeler, designers were giving him a hard time. And I was thinking, they don't know. They don't know what we're dealing with here. And that just made me think, well, everybody is probably like this to a greater or lesser extent. So why don't you just be a bit kinder to people? Why don't you just give everybody a little bit more leeway? Because they could be having a terrible day. And if you're going in there and making their day worse, that that doesn't make me feel good as a human being. So that's kind of why I... You know, why Why I'm so committed to being kind and being fair and just considering what positions people might be in. As you know, we talked about it, didn't we? I'm in an industry that's quite ego-driven. It's quite, there's almost a bit of celebrity around the people at the very top of the business. Uh, and that makes people behave differently. They gives them a, a sense of importance, rightly or wrongly. And I just thought, well, it just feels so superficial to me. You know, just be a good person, be a good human being, treat people kindly. You don't know what their battles are. That 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 shaped me. I'm a mom myself, so it's that maybe the hardest challenge you can get in life when something happens with your child. You know? So yeah. therefore, um, nothing, nothing in professional life can ever come even close to that challenge. I can absolutely understand you on that. So therefore, and yes, I I was in in the in the let's say, preparation call, I was asking you like, okay, how uh, did you become that kind person? Because that is something really that stood out to me, let's say, in, in my network, because we kind of know each other since um, IA Mobility in um, September 2021. And I, I really immediately noticed you are 
always helping, supporting other people. So um, in your team, but also beyond, you know, and even in, in our conversation, I mean, you are friends with all the people you worked with, in, let's say, in the previous life, and then they know you and you keep on, let's say, being friends with them, you keep on being in touch with them and so on. So that also tells a lot about personality of the people. Ne? So, And yes, as you said, you have this kind of brutal contrast in your industry. People can be mean, can be arrogant, can be choleric, let's say, playing out their moods on other people, shouting and so on. So and really demoralizing now what you also mentioned, like, okay, just screaming and shouting and not giving any kind of help how to improve, how to move forward. So um, it means really that, um, let's say, becoming a parent um, and also in, in, let's say, having this challenge with your one of your boys, now, that is something that made you, let's say, this kind and, yeah, supportive uh, human being. So that is really something that was, let's say, the, the beginning of it. Yeah, I think, you know, I'd like to think I've always been a kind person, but this this thing that happened in our lives definitely made me realise how important it was to me and how important it should be to everybody, really. Um, it, and, you know, you, you can't force your views or opinions on everybody. That That's not right either. But it certainly, from that point onwards, was was probably the most significant influencer on how I behave and how I am towards people. Mm-hmm. Yes. And thank you for letting me talk about it. You're right. I've, I've never talked about it publicly. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was good to, to talk about it. As I say, he's my hero and his brothers. And my wife is, I've got, I'm very lucky. I've got three heroes. I've got my wife and my two sons who, who are brilliant. And I, I wouldn't be the person I am today without them. It makes a very, very strong family, at least, I mean, not just in our conversation, but also when you communicate via social media and so on, it's it's visible and people can read, the, let's say, the emotional things between the lines. It's uh, absolutely clear. So therefore, lucky you. So it's... <laughs> I mean, still, let's let's go and, and find something that is, let's say, maybe not perfect about you. Let's talk a little bit about some bad habits. So do you have some bad habits? And if yes, how do you deal with them? I mean, do you accept them or do you work against them? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know if it's a bad habit, but um, it's probably a character trait of mine. Is it, As you've gathered, I'm quite soft, which means that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of open to influence, I guess, a little bit and... I'm a bit confrontation averse, if I'm honest as well. I I don't like arguing with people and falling out. And I, I think if I reflect on my career, there has been points when definitely people who are different to me, you you know, will happily leverage that kind of person's weaknesses. It's probably cost me a few times where being the person I am has just made it easier for somebody that will take advantage to to get the better of me. Um, it's not. It's never made me want to change, though. Love Miller, in all fairness. Uh, uh, you know, it might seem a bit of a self-defeating thing to say, but I'd I'd rather lose a battle playing fair and being the good guy than win a battle playing dirty, if uh, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, I'd, and and I've always said, you know, I, I enjoy the fact that I go to sleep in the evenings thinking uh, I've I've been a good person today. So yeah, that, that's probably my weakness. That people that know me know that I'm a bit of a soft touch. I would see it differently. It's actually it's it's a strength. And it's even yeah. a strength to reflect on that and to see that, yeah, I have that in me and I would see definitely that as a huge advantage. Yeah. And and I've changed over the years, you know. I mean, people that knew me 
30 years ago would probably say I was quite a feisty character back then. I don't know that I ever actually was. I mean, um, I've got quite a loud, a loud voice, or I did have, and I tend to be quite enthusiastic, so I might come across as being sort of quite in your face, perhaps. Um, but it was never it was never meant to be sort of a threatening kind of approach. But, I, I, yeah, I, I've changed. I, I've definitely mellowed as the years have gone by. Um, but, yeah, as I say, it's not something I particularly want to change because I I think it's it's actually quite a nice element to have as a character, really. And when you think about, let's say, being extrovert, introvert, usually people have both sides in, in themselves. So um, to what percentage are you a more an extrovert or an introvert? Uh, I, I think I'm an extrovert. I think uh, I think my wife would definitely say I'm an extrovert. Um, I, I, I do enjoy kind of speaking to people. I do. En I love performing music, as, as you're aware. Um, I, I, I just... I love being able to do something that makes people smile or makes people go, oh wow, um, you know whether whether that's playing playing live music or whether it's you know revealing a new mobility solution that people go, yeah, good job. Um, I do enjoy that, and I've never had a problem. Probably genetics, this because my dad always sang in rock and roll bands. My old childhood, it used to be funny. We'd go on holiday to Spain or Italy uh, on a coach trip when I was a young boy. And we go into a restaurant or a bar with live music. So there'd be, say we're in Italy and there's a, a an Italian band playing music in a restaurant. And we'd be there for, you know, two songs. And my dad would disappear from the table. And the next minute he's on stage singing a Gene Vincent song with this Italian group of musicians that have never met him. He doesn't speak any Italian. They probably speak a little bit of English, but not much. But performing a very, a very seemingly well-rehearsed song And I, in hindsight, I never understood the magic of my father being able to do that because as a musician myself, it's very difficult to just get up on stage with another band that you've never met and play play together in a very coherent way. It takes takes rehearsals. That's, that's why bands rehearse and practice. But I had my father as an example all of my life growing up. Uh, sadly, he's not with us anymore. Um, but he kind of probably led me to think, oh, Being like, this is, is what we should do. Uh, you know, I should get up in front of people and talk and sing and play guitar or whatever. So, yeah, it was probably how I was raised as a child that led me to be extrovert. But, yeah, I'd be, I'd be telling fibs if I didn't say I was an extrovert. And I guess it's also helping you professionally because, I mean, as a designer, you have constantly to sell your ideas. No? So you yeah. have to present. And if it's easy. <laughs> yeah, and, and as you know, public speaking, being part of panel discussions, which is how we met. Uh, yeah, that's a big part of our, particularly in the management sort of levels, it's a big mm -hmm. part of our job. Um, so, so luckily, yeah, I, I generally enjoy that. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's put me in a good place for what I do. Mm -hmm. So now let's talk a little bit about um, some life wisdom. So what would you say to your 20 years old self? if you have the opportunity to give just one piece of advice. So what would it be? Um, well, an interesting one, this. I, I, thinking about it, the one thing I probably regret in my career is I didn't travel more with work when I was younger. And I don't know why. I, I don't know whether I didn't have enough confidence to do it, but kind of, and maybe the opportunities weren't, weren't there that they are now. That and the fact that, in my earlier career, I was a brand Jaguar, which I absolutely loved. So I wasn't particularly motivated to go anywhere else. But uh, I did go to, 
uh, because Ford owned Jaguar in the early part of my career, I went to Detroit a few times and really enjoyed it. And I've always enjoyed sort of traveling to the US specifically. And I, again, I think that was a function of my childhood. I was brought up in the 70s where America was seen as this land of opportunity. And my dad kind of reinforced that idea in my head. So I, I, I think I regret maybe not trying to work in the US. My best friend who did the who was in a band with me that got onto the Coventry degree course, he ended up relocating to New York and has a family and a life in New York now. So maybe there's a bit of that as well. Um, I worked abroad for small periods of time, sort of as, uh, on contract in Germany, and uh, obviously since then I've been to China and so on. But yeah, I, I wish I'd have been braver and and travelled more and maybe relocated when I was younger, because now I have a, a you know a family that are very based in the UK and it's no longer really an option for me. I, I kind of travel about, but my base is here in the UK. But then, you know, 10 years later, they are all grown up. They go out yeah. into the world, they travel yeah. and you can go with them. So and you yeah, can still absolutely. relocate. Life is not over. So, I mean, you are just 50 something. So therefore, it's yeah. life. It's not over. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Elizabeth. Yeah. So and how did you define happiness when you were, let's say, 20 years old? Let's stay with that. And how do you define happiness for yourself today? Well, 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 again, I think, um, you know, when you're in your 20s, you're very self-focused. It's about achieving your career goals. So for me, the definition of happiness was getting my name on a Jaguar. You know, I, I, I worked on this project. You know, I'm, I'm associated with this, this brand that I'd always admired. And, and now I'm part of that brand. Uh, that was definitely my definition of success then. I think now, and we've talked about it a lot, it's I draw a lot of satisfaction from creating a good team of of creative people that are happy to collaborate together, tell me they're in a good working environment, give me that feedback, uh, are happy to, well, feel empowered to try new stuff, feel like they've got a, a leader that is allowing them to be who they want to be, supporting them where where they need support, letting them grow and be themselves where where I feel that they can. Um, you know, the the best bit of feedback I ever get is, I really enjoy working here. This it's great working with you. Um, you know, I, I I could hear that again and again and again. That that makes my day when 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 the team tells me that, um, and that's really important to me. I want them to to feel that way. So that that's success for me now is building a team that feels you know they're being supported and they can do great things together and and I can help. And actually, we talked about that before because you said uh, what kind of regrets you have. And I would like to ask you what is still on your bucket list beyond that you would like to travel more and maybe still relocate somewhere and so on <laughs> in the future when the kids are grown up. Um, I think I'd like to leave the... Cause I've been looking at my my career has has kind of spanned this huge transition in the in the car industry from you know just making cars with internal combustion engines to uh, sustainable mobility of all forms. So if, I'd like to leave the industry in a better place than I found it. So I'd like to leave an industry that has transitioned in a meaningful way to far more zero emissions vehicles, far more opportunities to provide mobility for the biggest number of, of people possible. You know, an industry that's far more inclusive, far more accessible, Uh, allows mobility for all. Those are the kind of, and they're lofty goals, I recognize that, but, you know, every journey starts with one step, doesn't it? So it's it's about the individual contributions we all try to make. So yeah, for me, if, if I left the industry in a 
a better place than I found it where we were committed to, you know, less waste, less pollution, circular economy, all of the stuff that we know is important to keeping our planet healthy. Uh, that, that, that's kind of what would be important for me now. Or even getting our planet healthy first. And well, then yes, keeping it. yeah. That's that's the challenge first. And if we summarize that as, let's say, as a life motto, what really guides you through your life? What is, let's say, one sentence, two sentences, what is your life motto? Well, well, as you know, I'm a, I, I'm a walking cliche, Ludmilla, in terms of the things I quote that that resonate with me. So I probably, in 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 life, I've probably got two which mean a lot to me. One is 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 much, much used, which is be kind always. Uh, honestly, that's that's a motto I live my life by. The other one, and we and you know, you said it rather than me, but I it's interesting that you did. Don't mistake kindness and compassion for weakness. It actually takes a lot of strength to be a kind person. So yeah, that's important as well. And then within the industry, uh, I'll quote myself here because I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, what have I said? Um, surround yourself with talented people and give them every opportunity to shine. That's that's what I would say is my motto in the industry now. Really, really inspiring and Yeah, now it's the time of closing this interview. And I know that you love it when, when your designers, let's say, tell you it was great pleasure to work with you, but uh, I don't have to say it. <laughs> I just feel it. Uh, it was a great pleasure to have you in this interview. I'm so honored that you said yes to this interview, that we spent time together and that you were willing to have this also very personal interview, really question that you have never answered before in an interview. It's been a pleasure, really. It's such an inspiration and... I know I will listen myself, let's say, a couple of times again and again. And I have a couple of interviews that I have in this podcast that I keep on listening when, let's say, some hard times come or let's say, well, I need more inspiration or I'm questioning something about myself or whatever, you know, in business and so on. So, And that will be definitely one of the interviews I will keep on coming again and again to. Thank you very much. Well, that, that's really, really kind of you to say, Ludmilla. I appreciate your kind words and I, I appreciate you inviting me onto this podcast. It's, uh, it's been an honor. And thanking, I'd like to thank you for letting me talk about some of the topics that aren't core design related, but they're important to me in my life. So I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. There are many ways to achieve a more sustainable future. There are many companies and innovative leaders who choose and actively go very different ways. Let's just not forget one thing. No matter how different the ways are, the big goal is one and the same. See you very soon in the next episode.